Hello, I'm Chris Biddle and welcome to episode 68 of Inside AgriTurf. I've been away for a couple of weeks, I hope you haven't missed me, and taking a mid-season break, but I'm now well into preparing the next episodes where the focus will be on the turf element of Inside AgriTurf. And for this episode, I'd like to reflect on some of the news stories from recent weeks. I'd like to provide my take on shows. Uh, Llama returned to the show calendar in May. On that extraordinary tractor porn story about an MP watching stuff on his phone in the Houses of Parliament. And lastly, on the impact or otherwise of No Mo May. So first, to that perennial issue of industry shows, which has never failed to exercise debate and division. And perhaps this could be subtitled, What Goes Round, Goes Round. Now, over my 30-odd years editing trade magazines, the subject of shows has become staple news fodder. Rather like the Daily Express's fixation on the weather or on Princess Diana, still. In 1988, I'd just founded Service Dealer magazine when the IOG, that's the Institute of Groundsmanship, uh, now it's called Grounds Management Association, decided to move its well-established Saltex show from the iconic venue at Windsor Racecourse to the East of England showground at Peterborough. It was a move too far for the grass machinery community and in 1990, the Garden Machinery Association, which comprised members of both the Agricultural Engineers Association for Manufacturers and BAGMA for Dealers, decided to run its own show at Kempton Park Racecourse, just to the west of London, in competition with the Saltex event. It actually overlapped by a day. Now, international show organisers were brought on board. An impressive show facility was built on the Kempton Park infield area with a huge tented village with solid flooring. I, I thought at the time it was strange building an indoor show on an outdoor area for an outdoor business. However, it meant that a number of manufacturers had to split their allegiance, opting to attend both the exciting new show by the industry for the industry and the established event with a long heritage run by their customers, that's the Grounds Care community. And looking back, it was a crazy situation. Despite encouraging words from both organisers after the shows and bright promises for future events, common sense, or more likely the bleeding obvious, prevailed. Most key exhibitors decided they could only be in one place at one time. And it didn't take long for the planned follow-up show at Kempton Park in 1991 to be canned. In the event, Saltex returned to Windsor, which still captured the hearts and minds of many in the turf trade. But of course, that show has since moved indoors to the National Exhibition Centre at Birmingham. And so, to the recent Llama show. The delayed show at Birmingham's National Exhibition Centre was staged in the first week of May due to COVID. And amongst the post-show comments on social media was this from the boss of one of the exhibitors, who wrote in essence, No doubt we will see lots of pictures of happy staff on stands and warm words issued by marketing and PR departments, including ours, about how the show brought us together. But is this really what the industry wants or can afford? And his remarks 
were echoed by a number of others in response. It is clear that a May date for Lama was not an ideal time to hold an indoor show for the farming community and this will surely have impacted on the farmer attendance. I assume the organisers had to stage the show for contractual reasons and that the January date for 2023 will be much more suitable and indeed virtually mirrors the time slot of the original Lama show, which uh, this year celebrated its 40-year anniversary. Talking of which, there is an excellent videoed fireside chat available on the Lama website, and you'll find a link in the show notes to this episode, uh, between Cliff Preston and John Sartain, two of the founders of Lama, together with longtime exhibitor Robert Wiley of Houseman Smears. They provide a truly fascinating account of the origins of Lama, which stands for the Lincolnshire Agricultural Machinery Manufacturers Association, and its Barnum and Bailey philosophy of let's put the show on right here. It was all very parochial in the beginning. They even initially banned exhibitors from showing imported foreign-made machines. And as Griff Preston says, we almost drew the line at machines made in the neighbouring county of Nottinghamshire. Now for years, Lama drew hordes of farmers to the showground at Newark, where they were served breakfast from 6.30, and the show really supported young emerging companies through low-cost and no-fuss staging, its educational projects and charitable support for the local community. Uh, the founder said, we set out to attract the users, the drivers, those that wanted to get hands-on with machines, in contrast to the big indoor shows like Agrotechnica, which tend to attract those with checkbooks. In many ways, we were more successful at running Lama with volunteers than many of the professional show organisers. We could respond at a moment's notice to anything that needed tweaking. And it was a format that worked terrifically well for many years. That is, until everything about the show calendar changed. First, it was the closure in 2004 of the London-based Royal Smithfield Show, followed by the subsequent axing in 2009 of the Royal Show, two events with a very long heritage that ran out of steam for a number of reasons. Over a very short timescale, the UK had lost both its major farm machinery winter and summer showpieces. Since its formation in 1839, the Royal Show had been held in different venues, from Newcastle to Exeter, from Cardiff to Cambridge, but settled into a permanent location at Stoneleigh in 1963. In 2007, the show was hit by really bad weather, causing it to close early on one day with 140,000 visitors on site, and organisers had to abandon the show a day early for safety reasons. This caused some resistance to future events from exhibitors and visitors, and although the show was held in 2008, it was losing money, and the Royal Agricultural Society of England announced that the 2009 event would be the last. The Royal Smithfield Show, with an even longer heritage being founded in 1799 and held in December at Earl's Court, had long been the date in the farming industry's calendar part business, part social, 
Its timing was also ideal for pre-Christmas shopping and socialising. And remember, there was no online shopping then. The show had been held at Earl's Court since 1949. A pre-war, Smithfield had been held at the old agricultural halls in Islington, North London, from 1862 to 1938. But as we entered the new millennium, there were already murmurings about the costs and the show reverted to being staged every other year, influenced no doubt by the mergers and acquisitions which were slimming down the potential exhibitor base. The 2004 Royal Smithfield Show was an excellent event and well attended, but it proved to be the last. It was attended by Princess Anne, who launched the newly adopted Careers Project on the Bagma stand, but discontent was growing. By that time, Smithfield had been acquired by Haymarket Events, who promised a revamp for 2006, a deduction from four days to three, lower stand costs and extra incentives such as free travel, complimentary meals and other benefits. However, within months, both Agco, with all its brands, and John Deere announced that they would not be exhibiting at Earl's Court in 2006. Agco made the announcement at their own World of Agco show at the Indoor Arena at the Staffordshire Showground, saying that Smithfield no longer represented value for money. And they were followed by John Deere, who said their decision followed an assessment of the show's value to their business relative to cost. Where have you heard all that before? And it didn't take long for others to also pull out, and the Royal Smithfield Club announced that the show was to be permanently cancelled. Now, whilst it would have been a commentary on the escalating costs and restrictions associated with large indoor venues, and Earl's Court was renowned for the influence of internal trade unions, a standholder daring to pick up a paintbrush to add finishing touches to tyre painting, which risked a walkout of the stand fitters. In truth, Earl's Court, and indeed central London had become unnavigatable for large tractors and combines. Yes, imagine trying to navigate a class dominator into the close confines of a West London street. Uh, some might say that there are enough dominators in Earl's Court already, uh, and that's a crafty link to the next item. Added to which, the increasing weight of machinery was becoming an issue for the flooring at Earl's Court, as beneath lay the swimming pool, built for the 1948 London Olympics. And so, with regret, we bade farewell to Smithfield at Earl's Court, possibly the last of the really enjoyable business and social shows on the calendar. But they were shows for then, and not necessarily now. It must be said, though, that regional shows were still doing well. The Royal Welsh, Royal Cornwall, Great Yorkshire... Royal Highland and so on were still going strong along with many others. So the need for a national show again came under scrutiny. Specialist outdoor demo events were being developed such as cereals and tillage. So how did this all impact on Lama? According to Cliff Preston and John Sartain, it transferred the spotlight firmly onto their show from the major players, whereas previously they may well have been represented at the show by local dealers. So here was a ready-made show with a proven attendance in an accessible location at an ideal time of the year. 
it was probably a no-brainer. But if that was the case, then the show's profile and the expectation of the major exhibitors would probably change the character of the show. It seems that in many ways this was to be the catalyst for fundamental changes, which would lead to Lama's acquisition by a briefing media, the publishers of Farmer's Guardian. The show moved from Newark to the East of England showground at Peterborough and thence indoors to the NEC in January in 2019, a move which signalled a new era for Lama. And then, of course, Covid struck, which sunk all shows for two years or more. Now, I'm not sure, but it would appear that the Peterborough venue might well have been a transitional decision before the NEC could be booked. Either way, whilst Peterborough had more facilities, Newark had more space and the ground conditions were more suitable for a January show. And you also knew when the show was being staged in either Newark or Peterborough because of regular broadcast traffic warnings of traffic queues on the adjacent A1. Pioneering spirit demonstrated by the founders of Lama were just right for that time. The philosophy of putting on an event where neither cost nor accessibility was an issue that worked staggeringly well. Small, embryonic companies were able to attend a national event at an affordable cost, and many of those have since gone on to greater things. But, and there are always buts, the industry has moved on. It has consolidated even further and has changed in character. Now it's generally accepted that early January is the best timescale for farmers, but running an outdoor show in early January is fraught with potential difficulties. For instance, you cannot have people tripping over heavy obstacles after daylight fades at around 4 o'clock. More indoor and marquee space was increasingly requested, and although the show was extremely lucky with the weather throughout its history, the last day of the last show at Peterborough was cancelled due to extreme winds. Now I'm not sure that you can judge the success or otherwise on this recent post-Covid event, or indeed many of the returning events this year. There will be an urge for exhibitors and visitors to return to that we call normality, with perhaps the economic return put on the back burner for this year. A much more realistic assessment of LABA will not be possible until 23 and onwards. That is, of course, subject to any pandemic raging at the time, foot and mouth rail strikes, or a host of challenges that tend to emerge from left field. So, no doubt the debate will rumble on what kind of event does the industry need for the new age of farming and a new generation of farm machinery? does a national show need to be an annual event? It is possible that one or two major exhibitors may pull out from time to time, but whilst their role is akin to that of a lead store in a shopping mall, they are a known factor, and they will always tend to do their own thing. Indeed, I'm sure that farmers go to a business-to-business show, such as Lama, to embrace the new rather than the familiar with tweaks. Now, more than ever, with the increasing complexity of machinery, systems and applications, 
the role of a national event is to showcase and explain new technology to farmers who are traditionally reluctant to change, but who will have to embrace considerable change over the coming years. It does need the facilities and infrastructure of a modern exhibition centre to do new technology justice. Our industry now is more about electronics than heavy metal. Perhaps Lama needs to broaden its scope and focus on the raison d'etre of farming and food production and incorporate the best of British food and invite the public to partake and learn more about our industry, much as they've done in France. What I do hope is that the current organisers never forget or abandon the spirit, flair, enthusiasm and indeed the enterprise that the founders of Lama displayed in the early days of the show and look to embed many of those qualities in its new format. It is uh, pretty clear that this industry flies under the radar of wide public recognition. Uh, perhaps the occasional TV feature on robotic tractors or glamorised in science cider ads. Other than that, very little in the national press, or should we call it the mainstream media. And perhaps that is why we find it difficult to attract outsiders into an industry they know little about. So imagine the shock then to find the leading front page story in the Times included the word tractors. And tractor was trending on social media. The reason is, of course, that a Member of Parliament had been outed for watching porn on his phone whilst in the Chamber of the House of Commons. Now, I'm not sure which is worse, the watching porn or the fact that he was paying more attention to his phone than to parliamentary business matters. If any of us whipped out our phone during a business or a board meeting and these MPs are our elected board members, then we would be rightly castigated. The excuse given by the MP, who was also a farmer, was that he was looking for information on attractors. Uh, but as it was during a debate on new hospital COVID regulations or something, uh, that uh, didn't really stack up. Immediately, the word tractor created a perfect clickbait storm. You know what happens when you see a headline or a story or a word that piques your interest but is something unfamiliar and prompts you to Google it, and other search engines are available, to delve deeper. And so it was with the headline, Tractor. What on earth could be the association between a tractor and some filmed rumpy-pumpy? All of a sudden, the internet was swamped with requests to know more about the world of tractors. And if we had wanted to increase awareness of our industry and its products then this was the perfect storm, but perhaps not in the way that we might have imagined. And my guess is that most people would have been no wiser about the tractor-porn connection after exhaustive searching. The brands themselves provide no clue. John Deere? Yeah, I got a t-shirt and a cap with that on. Massey Ferguson? Oh, that's a good old brand, yeah, heard of that. New Holland? No. Kubota? No. So there's no clues there. So what about model names? Now, most manufacturers in this international marketplace use numbers or letters to reduce confusion across languages. The John Deere 9620, the Case 4894, New Holland T7. But a few do use generic, unambiguous names, such as the Class Axion, 
or the class Aryan. And then bingo! Some bright spark, continuing on the class website, came across the class dominator combine. Not a tractor? Doesn't matter. It fits the story. It was the perfect connection, and indeed a plausible explanation. And so to add his five eggs in that well-known petrolhead turned farmer Jeremy Clarkson weighed in by declaring that tractors are as arousing as an oil rig and erotic as a headache, adding, it's a piece of machinery for goodness sake, heavy engineering designed to work in cloying mud and heavy rain whilst pulling three tonnes of complex machinery. Mind you, here is a tractor owner who, after extensive research, bought a tractor, the only brand of which he was familiar and which, when delivered, wouldn't fit in the shed, and had all the on-screen operating and service instructions in German. Now, a tractor may not be erotic, but they are desirable, for in the very week that this story was trending, someone paid a record sum of £214,000 for a 1982 restored county four-wheel drive tractor. The phrase tractor porn is not a word unfamiliar to the industry press. The chief reporter of Farmers Weekly told the Times that it was a phrase regularly used around the magazine as uh, newsstand sales shot up when the magazine cover featured a big, powerful tractor. So perhaps there is an unknown fetish out there just waiting to be satisfied. Now predictably, tractor gate trended and continued on full throttle for a few days before being overtaken by party gate, beer gate or any other story to which the suffix gate can be attached. It was, in truth, a sad human story uh, which came out of left field and which left the MP and his family highly embarrassed. Since then, it has been reported that the MP, farmer, having ploughed a lonely furrow away from Westminster, has reached the headland and is considering heading back that way by standing as a candidate in the by-election he caused. But the saying, no such thing as bad publicity, surely applies. There will be those who know that little bit more about our industry, albeit from a very unusual and unexpected route. This month has been decreed No Mow May by conservation charity Plant Life. And their aim of creating greater awareness of the importance of providing a natural habitat to protect and encourage pollinating insects, particularly bees, is a laudable initiative. However, as with all easily digestible slogans, the message often swamps the rationale. It has become all-embracing. No mode, not just domestic lawns, but all grass areas, period. In which case, those teeing off in the monthly medal and unleashing a daisy cutter down the fairway will then be able to practice that technique on the greens as well. And batsmen will have a new excuse for getting out in May that the ball spun sharply off a dandelion. Let's face it, the UK is the spiritual home of fine grass. It has a holy and sacred connotation. Hallowed be thy name, says the Lord's Prayer. And here we talk about walking on the hallowed turf-gracing Wimbledon, Lord's Cricket Ground, Wembley, Twickenham, St Andrews and so on. Freshly mown grass is regularly quoted as the nation's favourite smell. The feel of grass under bare feet is a joy. 
And of course, grass has huge environmental benefits, creating compost as a growing medium, encouraging wildlife, alleviating flooding and acting as a coolant for the environment. It is also one of the most resilient of plants. See how it rebounds after a dry spell. One of my most memorable occasions was to be on hand when a leading turf supplier completely covered Trafalgar Square with grass, allowing Londoners to come out with deck chairs and picnics, play bowls and generally enjoy the sudden greenness of one of the capital's iconic landmarks. But there are those who are trying to weaponize lawns. An environmental activist, Abby Richards, described as a TikTok influencer, whatever that is, is currently lashing out at maintained grass areas. I hate lawns, she says. Then the idea of being entitled to your own useless piece of green carpet and not putting it to practical use is a symbol of our lack of thought and collective ignorance. Private residential lawns, she adds, have become a totemic of the confluence of environmental awareness and anti-capitalist sentiment for my generation. And she's also taken aim at golf courses. In golf is a giant board game damaging the planet, and it is time for it to go. Yeah, right on. So are we going to see an extinction lawn movement blocking the fairways at Augusta as the flotilla of mowers sweep up the fairways? I would say I would like to be in their shoes should they try. But seriously, there is a valid debate about the management and care of grassed areas. The antis point to the water required, the pesticides applied, to the fuel required and noise pollution from mowing equipment. Then the last point is gradually, if not rapidly, disappearing with the rise and rise of battery-operated equipment. And unlike the first cuckoo of the season, the sound of Suffolk punches being fired up in March or April has definitely abated in recent times. But it would be wrong to assume that future generations will have quite the same obsession with lawn care as their parents or grandparents. But equally, they should be deterred from believing that the solution is a swathe of green plastic, which is far more environmentally damaging than any green patch of natural grass. There has been a rise in householders and developers opting for the easy option of fake grass in recent years, and it's said that 8 million square metres of the stuff is sold each year. But now the Royal Horticultural Society has banned the use of any plastic grass in the gardens, features or stands at this year's Chelsea Flower Show. I assume that means that they would not welcome any of the prize of that product as exhibitors. They say we launched a clear sustainability strategy last year and fake grass is just not in line with our ethos. And a Twitter account called Shit Lawns, which claims to cut through the greenwash of artificial grass, has over 20,000 followers and has launched a petition calling for a ban on plastic grass and an ecological tax on such lawns. But what with the energy cost of living and inflation crises, such a request is unlikely to receive much attention. Mind you, in California, which regularly suffers a series of droughts, householders are being offered $2 for each square foot of turf they remove from their garden, with the state offering subsidies to those who replace the natural with the artificial. 
but the message must be heard loud and clear. How can an area of natural grass that captures carbon from the air and supports wildlife be compared with a material made from fossil fuels which is likely to end up in landfill? We have a long heritage in grass care. Grass seed companies spend considerable sums on developing species for all conditions, particularly for drought conditions. And of course, the lawnmower was invented here in the UK at Stroud in Gloucestershire in 1830 when a young textile engineer, Edwin Budding, working on a machine that uh, removed the fluff and rough nap from guardsmen's uniforms, fitted the cutting cylinder to a chassis and produced the world's first lawnmower. The textile mill no longer exists, but a brewery that now stands on the spot carries a blue plaque commemorating his achievements, which my wife and I were pleased to present back in 2015. Those that care for our hallowed turf, the groundsmen and women, the turf professionals, are regularly sought out by the owners of major sports stadiums and golf courses around the world to curate their properties. And in the next episode, I'll be talking to someone who has scaled the heights of the turf profession. He has been responsible for the hallowed turf at two of the UK's sporting theatre of dreams. Yeah, Keith Kent was head groundsman for Manchester United at Old Trafford and then switched codes when he was appointed head groundsman at the home of English rugby, Twickenham. I know he will have a fascinating tale to tell. Until then, thank you for joining me. I'm Chris Biddle, and this is Inside AgriTurf. <laughs>